you can do a little bit better than that. <laughs> it's just, I know it's a little bit cold, but we need to have a little bit of sound and noise and have a bit of fun together this morning as we continue our series on Christian paradoxes, uh, which is all about, you know, there's some things in Scripture that sometimes don't really mesh well together. It's like the Bible says this, and the Bible says this, and how is that supposed to work together? Well, it does, and that's the point of this series where we look at some different aspects of um, what the Bible says about certain things, and today we're going to talk about our human identity, and, um, and so I have titled this message, Valuable Dirtbags, because I wanted to have a bit of fun with it, and so um, we're, we're going to explore what the Bible says about us as human beings, what gives us value as human beings. And um, recently, I, uh, my attention was brought to world-renowned atheist Richard Dawkins. Uh, he had written this book quite a long time ago. I've got a picture of this book, and it's called The Selfish Gene. Has, has anyone actually read that? No one? Okay, cool. Um, I haven't read it either, <laughs> but I heard a podcast. About, I heard a, a podcast, and then I listened to this debate that uh, Dawkins had with another um, a scientist. And basically, the premise of the selfish gene is that this um, um, Dawkins says that us as human beings are basically kind of like machines. That the whole point of our existence is to reproduce um, genes, that our genes are what motivates us, uh, leads us to make certain choices in order that they will be replicated and led to the next generation. Really, this is evolutionary science. This is all about uh, what is it that uh, survives selection, natural selection. And Dawkins makes this point that us as human beings, we are simply the vehicle for the genes to replicate, uh, reproduce, and survive. So, and that's why he calls it the selfish gene, because the gene is selfish. The gene desires to be replicated. The gene desires to continue on surviving, and therefore drives us to make decisions that in its best possible uh, a chance of it being passed on to the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that. In other words, us as human beings have got very little value except that we are the vehicle for our genes to be able to survive. How many would like to think of that as the value that us as human beings bring? At the same time, this is a very, very strong argument that is made, and many people uh, have taken Dawkins' ideas and run with it and say that, you know, he's written another book called The God Delusion. Again, I haven't read it, but he writes about how Christianity has got it wrong because all we are uh, is a product of what our genes are trying to tell us to do. But I was listening to another interview which brought my attention to this book in the first place, and there is another scientist, and his name is Andrew Gosler. 
And Andrew Gosler is a world uh, preeminent scientist around conservation and particularly around birds. He's a bird scientist and he loves um, studying birds. In fact, I think he lived for 30 years in the jungles in order to study birds. He's a very smart guy. But when uh, Dawkins's Selfish Gene book came out, it made the waves in the scientific community of which he was a part. And at that point in time, he was what he would describe as agnostic, which means that he kind of thinks that there is some kind of God, but he's not personally uh, really that interested or attached to a particular God. Um, and so he was reading this book, and it's kind of interesting because it was uh, the Selfish Gene that caused Gosler to start to examine whether the Christian faith had any merit. And in particular, it's because he said that Dawkins's thinking was incoherent. It did not actually make sense. And in particular, he points out to the conclusion that Dawkins makes at the end of the book, The Selfish Gene, which is this, that our genes cause us all to selfishly be making decisions in order to reproduce our gen genetic material. That is the whole point of The Selfish Gene. But he then concludes and says, but it doesn't have to mean that we are all selfish. In fact, us as human beings, we can learn to be kind and, and uh, loving to one another and produce a society where we all win. And Gosler looked at that and he went, Dawkins, you either are making the claim that we are completely driven by our genes or that we get a choice in our lives. You can't be saying that we are completely driven by our genes, but we can do something about that. And so Gosler went, hang on, what is going on? And he dove into the Christian faith, and he says that the Christian faith is the, and, and, and in a way he was saying that uh, uh, just in terms of the meaning and the value of life, um, this whole idea of just evolution, just signs, there is no God, he says is incoherent uh, in, in terms of what we are trying to do as human beings. It doesn't make sense for us to do anything uh, that is loving and kind. There is no point in doing anything of meaning and purpose because we are just simply vehicles of our genetic material trying to replicate itself. But he said faith is what brings meaning to our value. And that's what he was saying. He's, and, and, and he started to have conversations with different people, and he started to ask people, where does human worth come from? And he will ask people in particular, he'll ask this question, do you think human life has intrinsic worth? Intrinsic simply means that the, that the thing of worth has this internal value. It is not uh, predicated. It is not based on any external uh, thing. It's not about what you can do. It is not about what you can achieve. It is the fact that you just simply exist and you have value in and of yourself. That's what intrinsic value is about. And Gosler would go around to people and he would ask this question, do you think that there is inherent intrinsic value in life? And people would, would always say yes, because that's what we want to believe, right? Who, who of you think that there is no value in life? We all want to know that there is value in life. The, 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 the reason why you're sitting in this room is probably because at some level you know that there's a value to life and you're trying to find out how we are meant to best live out that value. But Gosler asked people, so, so how do you know that life has intrinsic value? What is it about life that has intrinsic value? 
And he said people would never be able to give an answer for that. Never. And then he would say, well, <laughs> our life has value because God values it. And that's why he says faith is the only way that we can coherently place value on human existence. It's because God actually values us. And I remember growing up, right? And, um, and I was thinking about myself and, and my life, and, and I realized, and this is quite a recent uh, revelation that I had, that a lot of my choices and the way that I thought and the way that I was living was tied to this whole drive for validation. Validation of my value, validation of my worth. When I was a kid growing up in Singapore, as most Singaporean children would know, your value as a child is attached to the grades that you get. The government even pays you money to get good grades. True story. One of my friends actually hacked the system because the government would give money for really, really good grades, but they would also give money for students who are the most improved. I had a friend who literally would fail the mid-year exams, and so that whatever grade that he gets at the end of the year would be an increase, and he would be given 200 bucks for that. He hacked the system. He found value and worth being smarter than the system. But I remember trying to get good, no, well, I don't know if I was really, yeah, no, I was. I was very much tied into this thinking of I'm, I'm knowledgeable and I know stuff and that is really important to me as a person. That's what makes Nate a valuable person. I remember growing up a little bit and through all the hormones uh, and puberty, I got to this place where I thought if I could get into a romantic relationship where another human being would say to me that they loved me, that would be a validation of my worth, right? And I did not include family in that because family, in my mind, had no choice. They had to love me. Your parents have to love you. Now as a parent, I learned that that is not true. I do not have to love my child. It is, it is, there's no contract that you sign for that. No one forces me to love my child. I choose to love my child. And, uh, but, but, but young Nate decided that a romantic relationship was the way to prove my value and worth. A little bit later, as I became uh, brought into leadership circles and leadership positions, I thought that my value and worth was tied into how successful the things that I led were going to be. Whatever the goal was of the team or, or the department or whatever I was leading, how well I led that team, what successes that it brought would bring about a certain level of worth to me. And that was what I was thinking. And there are decisions after decision that I make in all of these different ways that I was trying to seek out validation for who I am as a person. And this, what, this really startled me when I was looking at this because I started to think, that, man, why is it that after being a Christian all of these years and thinking that you know, God loves me and therefore I am loved and I have all, all this value, why is it that I still have this deep-seated need for validation? And I put forward to you that as I thought about this, I think that all of us are driven in so many ways for validation. So many of us are driven to find a way to make sense of my value and my worth. 
And I think that that is actually a central part of why we are social creatures, is because we often find that validation from an external source, an extrinsic source, not an internal source. And that is a huge reason why we make some decisions and we are driven towards certain things. I encourage you to reflect on the decisions that you've made, the big decisions that you've made in your life. Why did you make them? More likely than not, I'm willing to bet money on this, but I'm a Christian, so I don't. But if I had to bet money on it, I would bet that every single person has made decisions in order to seek validation. And so this whole idea that being a Christian actually makes sense for who we are as human beings sometimes still leaves us in a place where we are not very sure about what our value and our worth is. And I remember that when I started to hear more about the God of grace and how much God loves me, I remember thinking that it filled such a hole in my life. I remember thinking, man, this makes me feel good that God will love me. I mean, the whole point of salvation, right, is that Christ paid the price for my life. And if Christ was the price tag on my life, that means that I am worth Christ, right? Does my math check out? I know maybe God overpaid for me a little bit, but He still did it anyway. He was willing to pay the price for my life. And so that is a hefty price tag. That is a way that I can understand my worth and my value. And that's what I was thinking. And that's what was preached to me as a youth. We'll go to all these conferences. God loves you so much that He would die for you. And it's like, wow, that is amazing. And that brought me from a place of thinking that I needed to please God in order that He would bless me to a place of understanding that God blesses me because He loves me. And that's a wonderful thought. And I then started to see that in the Bible, there were so many different ways that we could see that God hugely values human life. I mean, we even have to just start in Genesis 1 verse 27, and we have this poem that says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Theologians call this the Imago Dei, which is the image of God. We've been created in the image of God. And this has been used to actually uh, 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 make this sense. Uh, uh, it, it was basically this that brought about the human rights movements. That every human being has intrinsic worth and value because we are created in God's image. And so we have no right to put certain people down or to raise certain people up just because of their ethnicity or their class, because every person is created in God's image. And that is a human rights movement right there found in Genesis 1.27. And as we carry on through the Bible, we find that the Jewish people were given a whole bunch of laws on how they were to live as God's people. And all of them were about living with other human beings. And it was probably... Uh, um, People who have looked into the legal systems of, of ancient society said that the Jewish law was probably the most humane. 
Why was it the most humane? It's because it elevated everyone onto the same playing field. One of those laws in particular was that every uh, year of Jubilee, which I think was um, uh, 50 years, all debts were erased. 100% erased. Every person who owed money, owed land, owed uh, sheep or goats or whatever it was, after 50 years, the debt would be erased and everyone would be brought to the same level once again. Why? It's because every human being has value in God's eyes. And we can go into the New Testament and all that Paul writes about what God has done for us, and we can see that God places huge value on humanity. And that, for me, was actually quite life-changing. I started to understand that God actually really loves me. And one of the things that I saw and, and started to understand is that the Bible actually gives me and paints me a picture that God has pursued me. That God has been beside me and leading me, as Beck mentioned a while ago, Emmanuel, God with us. God with us has pursued me to the point where I would understand and be open to and receive His love and His grace for me. And that happened for me in, in my teenage years and into my early 20s. But, and this is where the paradox comes in, I hit a season then when a whole bunch of hardships entered into my life, and yes, in the face of what some other people face, it wasn't that big a deal, but those things that weren't working out the way that it should um, really hit me. For example, I lost a close uh, a romantic relationship that broke down, and I was like, um, what's going on, God? Has anyone ever had conversations with God where it's like, um, what's going on? This this is not how it's supposed to work out. If you love me, God, then this shouldn't have happened. There, there was that season where uh, that happened, things weren't working well under my leadership, I wasn't getting the promotion that I thought that a valuable Nate should have. After doing all of this work, I'm still not where I should be. And you know what? Back in those days, I didn't realize that I had an insecurity issue. I didn't know that I had a self-esteem issue. I just thought that it just wasn't fair that a God who loved me would allow those things to happen in my life. Anyone ever thought those thoughts? I mean, the Bible is full of people that thought those thoughts as well, right? How do we reconcile this whole idea that God loves me with all of this stuff that is going on? And, and the truth is, it's because we don't understand how God values human life. And we started to reach into a place where we thought that God loves me because of me. And if God loves me because of me, then what happens to me directly impacts how God loves me. I don't know if that's quite making sense, but stay with that thought. And I want to show this to you from the Bible, which is what we're supposed to be doing. And many of us know the parable of the lost sheep, right? So I'm going to read that to you, Luke 15, verses 1 to 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, him being Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told him this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, 
If he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. And I love this story, right? How many of people love the story of the lost sheep? It shows us God's pursuing love for us, that he would go after us, he would leave the 99, and he would chase after the one, he would bring the one back, and there'll be this celebration. I remember those youth meetings that we have, and, and we would do the big altar call at the end, people would say the sinner's prayer, and it was like, all of heaven is rejoicing, this is the best thing ever. And it was all so wonderful that God would pursue us and bring the sinner home, right? But I want to read to you a parallel version of this story, and it's found in a Gnostic book called The Gospel of Thomas. Now, Gnosticism uh, was a way of thinking that was very Greek. It was uh, from Plato in particular, a Platonic thinking, and the Gnostics uh, put forward that they were kind of like Christians, but um, the Christians of that time finally got together and, and condemned Gnosticism as a heresy. What this means is that Gnosticism has twisted the truth of what Christianity is all about, and it parades as Christianity, but is not Christianity. And so the Gospel of Thomas was written um, by some Gnostic people, and, it's, and they call it the Gospel because they were trying to parade as Christians. But the Gospel of Thomas was written way later, okay? So this was way after the original Gospels were written. And um, what Gnosticism is about is that it thinks that the material world is completely broken, sinful, and that it's going to be gotten rid of, and how uh, we receive salvation is that we receive this special knowledge known as gnosis, gnosis, if you're spelling it with the G at the front, um, and this gnosis will bring us to this higher level of living, our spirits will rise, and that's, therefore we will find our oneness with God. Um, and that was a thinking of Gnosticism, but the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, and Gospel really should be in inverted commas, um, tells us the same parable of the lost sheep, but as a hugely different focus. See if you can pick it up. It says, Jesus said, the kingdom is like a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. One of them, the largest, went astray. He left the 99 and sought the one until he found it. After he had gone to this trouble, he said to the sheep, I love you more than the 99. When I learned that that was a Gnostic way of reading the gospel, I was like, but that's how I've been reading the gospel. That God would leave the 99 showing somehow more value for the one that was lost. And when he finds the lost one, by the way, it twisted a little bit as well, this one that was lost was the largest of them all. And somehow, I used to think this, you know, like when I was going through life and I see all these people that respond to Jesus and have their life changed, they had the best stories, they had the best blessing. You know that new Christian who's done nothing to deserve God's grace and they get the new job, the new house, and the new car. It's like, how the heck did you receive that? Oh, because you're the fat one that was lost. 
And I was like, man, I wish I was lost and fat. But we somehow twist the story of the lost sheep to think that God pursuing the sheep has something to do with the value of the sheep rather than the action of the shepherd. The Gnostic gospel tells us that the value is inherent in the sheep rather than inherent in the love of the shepherd. And it brings us back to this point of God loves me because of me, not because of Him. And so when bad things happen in our life, we suddenly go, God, why did you suddenly not see the value in me anymore? You used to love me, you used to pursue me, you used to do all these wonderful things for me, but now suddenly you lifted your hands off me. Why has your love changed for me? Because we start to think that God's treating us a certain way because we deserve it. Because the value is found in me. And this is not a biblical way of understanding the value and worth of human beings. See, the focus of the parable in Luke is that the shepherd would choose to save the sheep. The value is found in the shepherd choosing to to shave the sheep, to (laughs) save the sheep. He bore the cost on himself. He chose to celebrate the sheep that left. He didn't place a differential value on the 99 or on the 1. You know, sometimes I think that Christians think that they're not feeling God anymore, so they rebel in order that God would chase them. We think that we need to be the one that is rebelling and lost so that we will feel the love of the Savior. Because we think somehow, like the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, that God loves the one that he pursues the most. When really the parable is not about that at all. In fact, when we read the Gospel of Luke, what Jesus was trying to share was that he was trying to put the 99 snobby sheep in their place because they were accusing Jesus, you eat with sinners. The Pharisees, the ones who understood the law, the ones who understood God and they studied God's words the most at that point in time, but had gotten it severely wrong. They got to a place where they saw Jesus chasing after the sinners and they went to him, you're doing something wrong. And Jesus is putting them in their place and saying, no, 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 heaven celebrates when I pursue the one that is lost, but you're not lost as well. You get to celebrate with me. The whole point of the 99 is that they are already home and they get to participate in the celebration when their brothers and sisters are brought home with them. That is the point of the lost sheep. The lost sheep isn't the focus on the lost sheep. It's the focus on the fact that the shepherd will want to bring that sheep home so that we all get to be the hundred. I actually have a message stored up for one day that is called, I am the 99. Because when we sing those songs about, oh God, you would save me, I'm lost, and you would chase after the one, I'm like, but what happened to the 99? And I'm like, hang on, why am I behaving like the Pharisees? There's something more. (laughs) We actually already get to stay home with God all the time. And being one of the 99 is not a bad thing. But one of the problems with the Gnostic gospel 
is that it creates what is called sometimes a therapeutic gospel. And one writer writes about it this way, the therapeutic gospel leaves us thinking, Lord, thanks for recognizing my worth and loving me. Whereas the biblical gospel leaves us on our knees in profound gratitude, crying, thank you, God, that even though my heart is more like a defaced rock than a precious jewel, you saw fit to love me. The therapeutic gospel says, I am valuable, and that's why God loves me. The biblical gospel says, I am valuable because God loves me. See, the Gnostic gospel tells me that whatever I do, wherever I go, God will be panting after me like some kind of lovesick boyfriend. Like he needs our love because I'm the one that has the value. And we are completely, completely missing the point. And this is the problem. When bad things happen, the therapeutic gospel falls apart. When bad things happen, the God of love who was chasing after me because he valued me because there's some kind of inherent worth in me, we start to then have this question mark of, am I still valuable? And we start to then question, is God still really for me? Because if he's for me, he will want to protect this jewel of this person that I am. Is it Really? Because that's not what the gospel tells us. That's not what the Bible tells us at all. And this ties into what Paul the Apostle wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 12. And this is what he wrote, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that a passing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, I've heard many messages on that one verse alone that says this wonderful thing of like, God will place His value in us and therefore make us valuable, and then it will stop there. That's not where Paul stops, all right? This is where he goes from there. You've got this treasure that God has placed in you. Yes, amazing. And so he says, verse 8, And we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. In other words, Paul is saying this, I got this treasure and this treasure has resulted in me being afflicted, persecuted, crushed. How many people are signing up for this treasure? Because that's the gospel. That's the treasure. Why was Paul writing this? We need to understand it. In the letter to the Corinthians, Paul was writing to say that basically the church had turned away from his apostleship. Why? Because Paul was in prison. Paul in prison was a shameful thing, and they went, if the leader of the church is in prison, then the church is shameful and I'm turning aside from this and finding something more glamorous or glorious in our cultural terms. Isn't that what it's like in today's world? We follow the leader who seems to have it all together. But Paul is saying, no, this is how the upside-down kingdom works. And so I have this treasure that is given to me. What does he call himself? A jar of clay. What I am is not valuable. What's in me is what is valuable. And you know what? Sometimes 
what that means is that I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be afflicted in any way, in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? So that you get to see the treasure that is in me. See, if the treasure was me, any kind of affliction would be wrong. God would be neglecting His duty and protecting what is valuable. And sometimes I think we treat God as though He's negligent. We treat God as though He is absent because bad things have happened because I'm feeling the affliction. I'm feeling the persecution. Beck and I watched this movie a few nights ago and it was in World War II and the country of Denmark was overrun by the Nazis and there was this scene where this nun was teaching the kids and, it was, and they were asking this nun, why did God allow all of this bad stuff to happen? And the nun's response was, God was distracted. God was distracted because he forgot to value me. He didn't protect this jar the way that he should have. See, that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that the value was that the treasure was placed in a jar that wasn't that special, that is common. That doesn't really have much worth, but yet God will still choose to place his treasure in you. See, this whole thinking at the same time that Christianity shows humanity is inherent, intrinsic worth, I think it's wrong. Christianity doesn't show that humankind has intrinsic worth. It shows that we have a loving Savior who will love us even though we are common. We are normal. In fact, we are kind of lousy breakable, often useless at retaining and holding on to the treasure that has been placed in us. I've never loved the book of Job. <laughs> until I started to understand a bit more about his message. And one theologian put it forward to me, Job is actually a book about worship. See, at the start of this book, there's this weird scene, right, where Satan, the accuser of the brethren, goes to God and says, and accuses God, by the way, they only worship you because you bless them. That's the only reason you get worship. And so what does God do? Is that, well, put my servant to the test. Break him. And they did. And what does it say? In Job 1.21, it says, this is what Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We can't stand to breaking because we think we're worshipping ourselves. But when we understand that the treasure in jars of clay is meant to glorify God, and that's where our value and that's where our worth comes from, we start to put the breaking in the perspective of worship. 
I wonder how many of us know how to worship because the worship is about how I feel and what I'm getting out of this rather than what God's getting out of it. One person puts it this way, that pain, worshiping through pain is a luxury that only happens on this side of eternity. I love that God loves us. I love the blessings that my family has received. And many times I thank God that I'm not in parts of the world that suffer greatly. And we know them. They're all around us. But if we have a gospel that tells us that God loves me because I am valuable, it's not a gospel that reaches very far. I'd like you to talk to the Christian in Ukraine right now and tell them that God loves you because He blesses you. I'd like you to go to the slums of the Philippines, the rubbish tip, where hundreds of thousands of people live, and say, God loves you because He blesses you. You know, the truth is that I think some of them have a better perspective on how God's love works than we do. We think God's love is like the Powerball ticket. And the truth is that God's love is what gives us value. Paul's argument is that anything that is a struggle is on the outside and it doesn't actually get to the core. If my core is attached to the treasure that is Jesus. He understands that there's affliction, that there's oppression, there is abuse, but he says, I'm not broken. I'm not gone. Why? Because I know for whom I live, not for myself, not to get through today with no scars. Can you imagine what Paul's life would be like? I hope today there's no whippings, God. I hope today they receive the message and they actually give me some food. That'll be nice. How many of us live with that kind of perspective? I think some of us hide the treasure that truly makes us valuable because we don't want what people want to do to this jar. I was made from the dust and I returned to the dust. This jar doesn't contain value in itself. Its value is in the fact that I have received Jesus. What is the treasure that we hold in us? It is the fact that God chooses to live in us and with us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He breathes the Holy Spirit on us and fills us with His very presence. It's God's presence in my life that makes me valuable. And so why do we get together? I think it's because we are crappy containers. We are dirt bags that leak out the things that are of real value. But thanks be to God that when we are in His presence, there's a fresh filling and there's a fresh grace that's on our lives. He knows what kind of containers we are. He knows we are leaky, lousy containers. But He still continues to give us rivers of living water. Come on, church. Why don't we worship like we actually know what kind of treasure has been given to us? 
Why don't we raise our hands? Why do we listen to our soul when it says you're tired and you're cold? Why don't we just go, come on, there is nothing else that I can really give to God except all of my worship, all of my life. I'm not looking for behaviors. I'm not looking at legalism. I'm looking for a true blue understanding that God loves me even though I am a defaced rock and not a valuable diamond. He chose me not because I'm the fat sheep. He chose me because He chose me. He has enough love for me. And that is sufficient for me. And so when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because He is still my rock. My value in life is not attached to me, what I can and can't do. My validation is not from what I'm able to achieve. My validation comes from the fact that I know that I don't deserve the love of God, but He still loves me anyway. And the fact that he loves me doesn't make me more valuable. It makes me more graced. And the more I receive that, the more I'm able to come humbly before the throne of grace and say, God, I need you more today. There's affliction coming my way and I don't know what to do about it. And I hope that you can hear the voice of God saying, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. It would be a lot easier if God were to change us into some kind of Ming vase when he saves us. It would make a lot more sense. Of a church full of Ming vases And then Leaky Louise comes in and says, you can be like us. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Leaky Louise comes in and sees a whole bunch of other Leaky Louises. (laughs) And says, oh, you're like me. Yeah, which is grace by God. And I'm here to worship like I know that I've got treasure has been given to me. I'm just the jar of clay. So fill me up, God. Can we get the band up? I don't really know where to land is. I thought that this would be more about, hey, take heart, God loves you. But I sense that you already know that. I sense that the issue is that sometimes we forget that. We forget that God chooses to love me. And we take our eyes off God and we place it on ourselves and we look at ourselves and we go and we start to ask questions about what's happening in our lives because of what's happening here. What worship does is that it takes our eyes off this onto God and to see His grace and His mercy, to see His goodness. I'm not saying that bad things, you don't need to worry about them or you, don't, or you just avoid I'm not saying any of that. But I'm saying that in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the trouble, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of what is going wrong in your life, you know that there's something right. And that is that God continues to love you and that He continues to grace you in the midst of your storm. I'm not saying that your storm will disappear. I'm not saying that your giant will fall down. I'm not saying that the wall will just tumble down at your shout of praise. That may happen. And if that happens, praise the Lord. But what I'm saying is that in the midst of all of that, I still give praise to God naked 
naked I came from the womb and naked I return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be his name. Can we stand and worship God like he actually deserves our praise? He's the shepherd that came after me. He's the shepherd that chose me. He's the shepherd that bore the cost of my salvation on his shoulders. Even though I have got no worth and value inside of myself, he still chooses to do that. Come on, that should be stirring something up within me. That should be a a, a bubbling up. That should be doing something in my soul because I get to worship God. He's revealed his love for me. So can we just sing this song? I know our time is up, but can we just sing this for a moment and just praise God in this place? We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.